Into the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Tuesday, May 28th, 2013. My name is Ben Stone, and this is podcast number 320. If you're tuning in, hoping to catch the next segment of, uh, of the podcast uh, series on Beyond Civil Disobedience, that will probably air uh, Friday of this week. Um, What we have today is my interview with Paul Rosenberg. I had intended on this being posted Monday, but uh, there was a little confusion, and uh, we ended up posting the George Donnelly interview for Monday. So, uh, So delayed a day, here is the interview with Paul Rosenberg. And with me today is Paul Rosenberg. Uh, you might know Paul from any of uh, a variety of uh, ways. He is the author of a lot of books. One is A Lodging of Wayfaring Men, The Words of the Founders, and another one is Production Versus Plunder. I, and I, I said that weird. There's actually three books there, A Lodging of Wayfaring Men, The Words of, our found, of the Founders, and Production Versus Plunder. Uh, you might also know Paul from his website, Free Man's Perspective, not Freeman, Free Man's Perspective. We don't want to interrupt, we don't want to confuse him with any popular um, economists <laughs> that are out and about today. You might also know Paul Rosenberg from his work at uh, LRN or from his work at Crypto Hippie USA. Uh, Paul, welcome to badquaker.com. I've wanted to have you on for a while and it's just really a thrill to talk to you and meet you. Oh, thanks. It's good to be here. We have sort of a weird connection. Um, in 1988, I believe it was, 89, right around there, uh, I was installing fiber optic cables on a uh, naval base. And we had, to, uh, we had to have the manual with us at all times because it was kind of a new and unusual um, uh, technology and, a, and, a very, and, and it required a bit of skill and knowledge to do it right and not break the cables. And so we had to have the manual with us at all times. And the best I can figure, I probably had your manual in my hands at that time. Oh, isn't that funny? <laughs> um, we also, you know, you, uh, you have experience working with NASA and the, and the defense industry and that's kind of where I cut my teeth was contracting into the aerospace and defense industry and NASA and so forth. So we kind of no have kidding. that background. I had no idea. <laughs> and um, like we talked, like we talked about ahead of time, uh, I wanted to talk to you about bitcoins today. You've had several really good articles lately, um, and um, and 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 I wanted to ask you about the two threats to Bitcoin: the outside threat and the inside threat. Um, Let's talk about the outside threat first on Bitcoin. Um, Basically, we're talking about governments and the money masters. How do you see the outside threat with Bitcoin? Well, you know, in the end, if Bitcoin succeeds, uh, 
then the fiat money system is at least exposed and quite probably damaged very seriously. I mean, it's just, it's fraudulent. It's a fraudulent system. It's, um, it's designed to skim from millions of people at once. Um, you know, and once people actually understand how it really works, they're horrified. First of all, I can't believe that it's actually real. You know, I remember my, myself the first time, you know, understanding how this thing actually worked and going, no, 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 that can't, that can't really be. No, that could, that could never really be, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> um, so anyhow, these guys have a lot to lose. Um, the, the, the people with the money monopoly in the United States, that means the Fed, uh, and the politicians that, you know, feed off of it, not just direct money, but they get to run massive departments, which they love. You know, it's important to remember that people who are in the highest positions, it's not just for money. They like power. They like control. They need it. They have a certain type of psyche. Uh, that needs this stuff. And if Bitcoin succeeds, all of that either goes away or is really badly damaged, and they are they are going to fight it. And they already are. Now, you made a, a very, very logical argument, I thought, in one of your articles. I want to quote you here. Um, you said, this gives us... Oh, let me set the ground. Uh, basically, um, you know, are we crazy? Are we thinking, oh, well... Uh, government is tyranny, and they're using money to uh, as a as a form of tyranny over us. Is that just crazy accusations? Well, you set up a logical question here. You said this gives us a new way to directly address the subject of monetary tyranny, providing a clear test for the governments and the money masters of the world. If they are truly not tyrannical then they will leave this new currency alone. If they are tyrannical, they will attack the new currency because it eats into their scam. I, I love that. That's that's taking <laughs> a purely logical situation and saying, now it's either one thing or it's not, or it's the other, and it's not even mm -hmm. a you know you're not uh, setting up a false dichotomy here. You're you're saying either they are tyrannical or they're not, and if they are, they're going to react this way, and if they don't, then we're wrong. They're not tyrannical. Right, exactly right. If, if they were to leave this alone and say, well, you know, it's another thing. If people want to use it, that's fine. Then we'd have to say, okay, well, we were, we were mistaken. We were, you know, overreacting or whatever. But they're not. No. They seem to be, they seem to be going after it hard. And, and I think they will even get more aggressive with time. Yeah, I, I think so. They're, right now they're taking down um, the exchangers, uh, the routes from the economy that they manage in and out of Bitcoin. Um, and they've been doing it in a number of ways. They've gone after uh, bank accounts. They've, uh, the banks uh, are refusing to do business with anyone who touches Bitcoin. Um, you know, there have been DHS attacks on some of the people, and I think there's going to be more. And that's an interesting thought, too. A denial of service attack is generally thought of as coming from evil, you know, evil uh, fanged, horned hackers that are hidden away in some basement somewhere. But uh, but we're looking at the possibility of denial of service attacks um, coming from those in power, right? Oh, absolutely. They've been they've been uh, talking about things like that for years. I I can't cite your chapter on verse on this, but there are several governments. Uh, I think one of them was Holland. 
uh, who've been saying, yeah, well, it's, it's legitimate for us to hack anybody's computer we want to, to aggressively, you know, uh, break and enter into their computers. And, you know, they've got, here in the States, they have, well, 11 acres of computers underneath Fort Meade, Maryland, uh, and a million square foot facility that's just being completed now in Utah. You know, they're just, you know, they have no, they have no qualms about doing that sort of stuff. A way that people might think of this is, you know, if they will take an entire uh, town like they did in uh, in Boston and lock it down and go door to door and, you know, go in with guns drawn, pointed in people's faces, pointed at children, yeah. drag them out, search their houses. If they'll do that, why wouldn't they look in your computer? Why wouldn't they attempt to shut down something by using a denial of service attack? Right. Uh, you know, the... the the truth is that the Constitution really doesn't mean much anymore. Um, you know, we have presidential kill lists and so on, where they're and they're going out saying it's okay for them to kill an American citizen uh, without a trial, uh, which is, you know, I mean, so you know, what else? What else won't they do? Yeah, it's really hard to to. You know, to say, well, we have, um, we have, you know, property rights or we have, you know, a lot of people are talking about gun rights right now. And, mm-hmm. and I would argue, of course, there's no such thing as a gun right. There's a right to own property. There's no right for specific types of property. And the flip side of that is um, either you have a right to own property or you don't. And if you do, then the government doesn't have any say, it shouldn't have any say so on what that property is as long as you're not harming anybody else with it. But uh, that would be a sensible position, yes. But that doesn't seem to be the case in the United States. It appears that we don't have, in reality, the, the you know on the ground, we don't have any property rights. Period. They can come into your house. They can search your person. They can look through your papers, through your computer. They can take any particular item that they have question about, including your car. If you're driving down the road, and this is specifically true in Tennessee right now, with a few hundred dollars you know, in, in, in cash on you, then they can just deem you a drug dealer, even though there may be absolutely no evidence of drugs. If they decide arbitrarily that you have too much cash on you, they can take the cash, take the car and leave you high and dry on the, you know, on the freeway in Tennessee, basically. And you have no, uh, no, no voice in the matter. No, no, nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it's really there is no restraint on them anymore. The only restraint that that really exists. I mean, there's a few exceptions. There's still you know a few good sheriffs who will, you know, who will refuse to do things. But you know their numbers are dwindling, and they're do it at their own personal risk. Um, but the real problem is that they are feasting on an absolute surfeit of legitimacy since 9/11. Um, the general American public, I'm not being fair to everybody, but the general American public has been, oh, yeah, the state is our savior, our protector, our this, and, you know, going through the airports, and, uh, you know, everybody just kind of obeys and thinks, well, it's necessary, so they go along with it. And as long as people do, well, you know, what's the restraint on them? Why should they care? Everybody obeys them anyway, so, you know, why should they stop? Going back to the Bitcoin thing, 
Um, one of the big uh, accusations, and I just found this laughable right from the beginning, but one of the big accusations is, oh, well, you know, uh, those Bitcoins, that's used by drug dealers and that's used to buy illegal <laughs> things and they're going to use that to uh, um, to launder money. And, and this was the big reason that you keep hearing over and over as to why Bitcoins are evil and why governments have to get control of them. Uh, you had a – I want to quote you again. In one of your articles, you said – that uh, dollars and euros and pounds are used for money laundering every day. Consider the recent money laundering scandal. Oops, the consider the recent money laundering crimes of HSBC, uh, Wachovia, Wells Fargo. These bank launderers. Oh, I'm sorry. These banks laundered hundreds of billions of dollars for violent drug cartels. And consider that this amount of laundering money. Uh, is several hundred times the value of every Bitcoin in existence. No one from either bank went to jail. Neither bank was shut down. Neither bank suffered uh, more than a minor fine. And that just takes the whole argument of, well, somebody's going to do bad things with Bitcoins. It just takes that argument and smashes it into the ground and drives its face into the mud. There's no argument left there. There really isn't. I mean, these guys, knowing that these were, I mean, these weren't just, you know, uh, you know, Bitcoin is, uh, is sometimes used by, you know, kids who want to, you know, smoke pot or whatever. Okay, well, not particularly my thing, but, you know, not my problem either. Uh, but, you know, these guys were laundering hundreds of billions of dollars for known violent, murderous drug cartels. And... And, you know, they got minimal fines. I forget exactly what the fines were, but it was a small fraction of what they made on this stuff. Um, and even one of the uh, federal prosecutors said, well, there could be consequences too many if we uh, prosecute them, so we're just going to let them go. Uh, you know, for, from any way you look at it, from a standpoint of justice, from a standpoint of them keeping to the rules that they swear to uphold to probably half a dozen others, it's just a total fraud. That's just mind-boggling that that something so blatant could be looked over by the public. You know, they're just uh, they just seem to be so many of the public is just asleep, mesmerized by their televisions, and uh, and I think the I've said this a lot of times too. The forty-hour work week where we get up in the morning to an alarm clock, we shove ourselves into a, well, first we shove some carbs down our throat, and then we get into a metal box. And then we commute for half an hour, 45 minutes or an hour. And then we climb out of our little metal coffin, which is just a death machine waiting to take us away. And then we sit at a mindless job where we're not allowed to really have any original thinking. The typical, you know, the typical cubicle job that, that I've experienced, the last thing you want to do is really seem bright because then you're going to be a threat to your boss. So you Isn't just, that sad? Yeah. So you just yeah. want to produce a mediocre amount of uh, of production, just the least possible to get by and not draw any attention from anybody. And you do that until it's time to get back in that metal box and try to stay awake and not die for the next half an hour, 45 minutes until you get home. And then you mm -hmm. can sit in front of the TV and be mesmerized until it's time to fall asleep. That is yeah. a horrible existence. It really is, uh, and it's you know it's surprising to me because in the 70s and 80s, uh, even in the 90s, that started to break up and go away. Um, but now it's going really uh, 
badly corporate. I mean, the number of self-employed people is dropping rather precipitously in the United States, and everybody's back in the corporation. It's back like the 1950s. Terrible. Yeah, it's really not good. Uh, now, going back to the bitcoins, we we talked about the exterior threat to bitcoins, but mm-hmm. you brought up a really good point that has kind of concerned me for a while. But I didn't really know how to articulate it because I don't really know enough about the the ins and outs of Bitcoin. But you talked about the inside threat to Bitcoins, about people right. who, you know, claim to love Bitcoins, but really it's just a stepping stone to power for them. Yeah, there are a lot of a bunch of people, kind of venture capitalist types, who are jumping onto Bitcoin. They had a convention last weekend. Uh, and I've had Bitcoin, you know, guys who are really deep inside of it who've been warning me about this for some time and saying, you know, these guys are regulatory statists. They want to take it over. And they, they, what they want to do, in my opinion, anyhow, is become the new techno riche, you know, the, uh, the Zuckerberg, the uh, Gates model. Um, they want to get really rich and be, you know, essentially join the elite class, you know, where they can fly around the world and have a yacht and all that kind of, you know, stuff. Um, and Bitcoin, they, they're smart. They understand that Bitcoin is a really cool new technology and it's, it does a lot of good things and it can send, you know, rather than people spending, you know, 10 20 $30 to send uh, money back to their family via Western Union, they can do it almost for free. So they understand that it's a massively better model, um, but they want to become elite on it, and it's contrary to the nature of Bitcoin. And it's, you know, they really don't love the freedom it brings. They just want to, you know, get a, a quick, quick buck. That's really heartbreaking to people like me who look at Bitcoin as this wonderful alternative currency that can bring financial freedom in so many ways. And then to think that there are people, very influential, very rich, very influential people who who have the power almost, if not, uh, if they don't have it, they're very close to having the power to shove this right into the hands of the regulators and just destroy those dreams. And that's what they're doing, and you're entirely correct. What, what matters about Bitcoin is the fact that it's honest money and it's very it's decentralized money. Uh, this is a magnificent freedom technology, and uh, to just kind of you know say oh let's just you know let the feds do whatever they want because you know, then they'll leave us alone and you know, we can make a lot of money on the side. Um, it's just it's these guys should know better, um, at least some of them. Uh, but you know, it's a massive loss if it comes to that. Now there are other things coming that may mitigate this problem. Even if these guys do do this, um, tech isn't standing still and there are other things going on, but it's going to require, uh, time and effort. And it won't be the easiest way to do it. There are other, um, I don't know if you'd call it, uh, knockoffs or clones or whatever of Bitcoin that are very similar. Um, what, uh, what's your familiarity with, with some of the other types of uh, uh, Internet coins like that? Well, I have some familiarity, although I don't know them as well. Litecoin is one. Um, there's a lot of the, – the, the really exciting thing about Bitcoin 
is that there are all these young guys, um, and I use guys, you know, unisex, um, there are all these young people who are uh, adapting and writing their own things and making their own things. They're, they're acting rather than being passive participants. Um, they're writing things like Litecoin and turning that into its own currency. Um, there's, you know, it's essentially Bitcoin with some variations, and they tell you exactly what they are, and you can use them or not, if you, you know, whether you think it's a good idea or not. There's another one called ZeroCoin, which is a, a way to anonymize Bitcoin. I mean, really anonymize it. Bitcoin is pseudonymous by itself. If you use it correctly, it's pretty much anonymous, but this one does it really well. Um, there's one called Namecoin, which is an alternate DNS system based on Bitcoin. Um, so there have been all these people, mostly young, who are adapting and doing really interesting things. That, to me, is the really exciting thing about Bitcoin. These people are active, not passive. With me on the show today is Paul Rosenberg uh, from Free Man's Perspective. We're going to break here for a commercial. We'll be back in about 30 seconds. Be sure and stick with us. We'll be right back. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy. Amazon has great prices and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can even get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of Plus, it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give badquaker.com a tiny portion of the purchase price. It won't cost you any extra, but you will be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Thanks for sticking with us through the commercial. This is Ben Stone with Paul Rosenberg on the Bad Quaker podcast. And uh, Paul is from Free Man's Perspective, and there will be links in today's show notes to... Uh, uh, to Paul's site and to where some other stuff that uh, that Paul works at. Now we were talking about bitcoins and uh, alternative currencies in general. Um, Paul, I've been I have kind of I've been doing a series uh, that I'm I'm just getting into, and one of the things that I'm saying in the series is that modern government, as we know it today, seeks to control the money supply. It seeks to control the media. It seeks compliance. From, from the public, you know, through bread and circuses, it wants to keep us numb and dumb and full. And, uh, and it seeks a permanent state of war with a military that's willing to turn on the public. And that's kind of how I've analyzed the modern version of the state that sits upon us at this time. And, I, and I've, kind of, um, I've kind of thought ahead and I thought, well, what's the next stage of this thing? What is it going to want to do next if I can give it a personality? Mm-hmm. And, um, and 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 in thinking of this, I think, well, who if if you have a person who looks at the current situation with the state worldwide and says, oh, government is a good thing, oppressive government or or restrictive government, or however they want to think of it, if they think, oh, this is a good thing, and if and if a hundred governments are good, eighty would be better, ten would be even better because there's less opportunities for war if there's ten rather than a hundred or whatever. Mm-hmm. And three would be better than ten, and one would be better than three. So the natural progression of the mind of the person who believes government is good, if they're logical, they should believe that one government would be the optimum situation. 
So, right. um, so you don't necessarily, ha- in order to see this, you don't necessarily have to think that there's a, a hidden committee somewhere with, a, with an agenda and brilliant men planning this all out so that they can enslave us. Really, all you have to see is that, well, if you believe the government's good, this is a logical progression. So as I see these things that the government seeks to control today, I say, you know, probably the next stage of development of the state as we know it will be an attempt to, um, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, unify um, uh, nation states into more singular governing bodies, whether that would be like a North American Union or whatever. And I, and I see that as the next logical step in the state. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, first of all, you're entirely correct. If you really think that government is, you know, um, God on earth, as Hegel says, um, then, yeah, you want it to be singular because then it could provide, you know, justice for all equally and all those sorts of things. Um, there are a lot of people who've been trying to do that for quite some time. Um, uh, back, I have quotes back from the 40s and maybe earlier of people who wanted to do precisely that. Uh, people in very, very high positions, um, you know, David Rockefeller types, uh, who very much want to do that. Uh, I think for the Europeans in particular, they want to do it rather sooner than later. Um, the United States is a tough one. Uh, they're gonna, they have had and will have a hard time with the United States just because there are a lot of Americans who still hold the old ideals. Uh, regardless of all the things you and I both complain about, about people being compliant and everything else, which are, <laughs> which are legitimate issues, <laughs> if you show up and catch a group of guys at a construction site, let's say, at lunchtime, and if you sit and talk to them and do it the right way, you can pretty much get them to agree with a lot of things that we believe. Yeah. And there are, yeah, there's a lot of residual, for lack of a better word, liberty-mindedness in the United States. So they're going to have a lot harder time doing it in North America. Um, Europe is further along that route, and uh, I fear it there first. I tend to think uh, you're right in that. Uh, and this kind of brings us into something that, uh, that, that you're – actually, I'm kind of amazed when I read your stuff in regards to history. I, I, I'm reading through and I think, man, you know, I, I just said that last week or, or that, you know, I said that in an article not very long ago. It, our, our thoughts seem to run very parallel when, when uh, every time that I've seen you covering historical things – um, it, it really kind of amazes me sometimes, and cool. it's it's really a view that's outside of the official storyline or the official, you know, um, uh, what I like to call uh, 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 court historians' version. Oh, that's a good way to say it. I like that. <laughs> um, how do you how do you think uh, how do you think it is that people like you and I think differently? You know, they typically teach history by saying, okay, now you memorize these dates and you memorize this list of kings and you memorize these important battles and take this test and now get on to the next class. And how yeah. is it that people like you and I think different th- differently than that? Boy, you ask easy questions, my friend. <laughs> um, a part of it is, part of it's just luck. 
um, that we're particularly bent that way or we haven't been injured in such a way to prevent us thinking that way. But the other big thing is seeking understanding rather than memorizing facts. And when you seek to understand the things, you know, the facts they give you that just don't hold together are a problem to you and they bother you. And you want to understand, you know, well, why does this happen this way? And why did this group, you know, win this war? Or why did these people, why did Rome fall? Or, you know, all these questions, we want to know why. And I think that's a real big part of looking further and wanting to go beyond what you're taught in the books. Um, I think there's something else, too, about the way you and I look at history uh, and and I've read where you've said the same thing, and I, and I say this pretty regularly. Um, we reject the cartoon version that yeah. uh, that the state tries to teach everyone, and that really is. You know, I say that all the time. History is not made up of a bunch of cartoon monsters and heroes, you know, hitting each other on the head with frying pans. It, uh, human beings are not like that. Human beings are not these cartoonish monsters and heroes that are, you know, if, if we just pick up a high school history book and you read about somebody like George Washington, you mm-hmm. think there's no one like that on earth today because this cartoonish version of a hero is so bizarre. Uh, it, it's not like anyone you know. And so I yeah. can't believe George Washington was like that. I think he was like the guy that lives next door to me just under different circumstances. And George Washington in particular was a very complex guy, a good guy, but a very complicated guy. And he, yeah, he wasn't a cartoon. He was a real flesh and blood human with, with virtues and vices. And I think that's true with the villains in history too. Um, I, I know yep. the quotes are uh, given to several different people, but I believe it was Napoleon that said that uh, uh, history is written by the victors or something like that. He may have been quoting mm-hmm. someone else too. But Napoleon is a great example because, you know, he was he was both the history he was both the monster and the hero according to who's telling the story, and, right. and yet he was probably just like the guy next door in reality. You know, and I'll give you another a great quote. There was a, a writer who was forgotten nowadays, but in the oh, let's call it twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, he was uh, huge. His name was Ben Hecht, H E C H T. And uh, Benny Hecht was the, um, well, he, became, he was a great writer. He became the uh, screenplay doctor for Hollywood, made fortunes of money in the time fixing up screenplays. Uh, he's the guy who, who, who fixed up Gone with the Wind, among many others. And um, Hecht knew everybody of his time, all the famous guys, all everything. And his comment was, he says, all the great men that I've ever known were mediocrities that got run over by some large event. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, he's, he's probably right. Yeah, yeah. P- people adapt to the situation they're in, and even leadership to a large degree, leadership appears as people – well, it's a market situation. People, people if they need a, a leadership for something particularly, the market provides that, the market of humanity. Mm-hmm. And if they don't particularly need a leader – then that guy just goes on and picks apples or whatever. Right, right. And after, and as the events are occurring and afterwards, they write the myths according to what works best for the people who are able to write the myths. <laughs> let's uh, let's touch on since we're talking about history. Let's touch on some of the real uh, heroes of history, uh, as you pointed out in a recent article. 
um, these are the people sometimes that we refer to as smugglers, but really they're just people who engage in trade. And that's gone on far longer than the first, the way I put it in one article, the, 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 the first time some fat tyrant put a crown on his head and declared himself king. By that time, trade was already very, very old. Oh, astonishingly old. Um, you know, the example that uh, I think we both have used is the obsidian trade. You know, it's, it's a very lucky thing with obsidian. We can trace it real well. Obsidian is volcanic glass. You know, when you, when you break it properly, it's exceedingly sharp. It's so sharp that they still use it in scalpels. Um, and it's formed from specific volcanoes. So if you have a piece of obsidian, you can tell where it came from. The, the, chem, the chemicals are slightly different depending on where it, you know, where it erupted from the ground. Uh, and then once the edge is cut, the, uh, it can be very clearly determined how deep the water from the atmosphere, from anything else, seeps, in, seeps into it. All you need is a light microscope, and you can tell with surprising accuracy how old it is or when it was cut. So if we know where it came from, when it was cut, and where we find it, we have a lot of information. And the maps that they've put together from the obsidian trade are, are shocking uh, because they cover, let's say, at 8500 BC, which is, gosh, 5,000, no, yeah, 5,000 years, 6,000 years before the pyramids. I mean, the pyramids are closer to us in time than they are to these people. That's quite uh, a thought right there, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, these obsidian traders, just these ones I'm talking about now, are closer in, the, the, are farther away from Egypt than Egypt is from us. Egypt's closer to us than them. And they traded over an arc of, oh, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 miles. Who were these guys? They were just, you know, us. They were just guys who said, gee, we have this stuff. Uh, we have lots of it here. Let's, you know, there's other people in other places we've heard about. Let's, let's go over and trade with them. And there was, you know, there was no rule of law and laws of the maritime highways or any of that sort of stuff. They just went. And guess what? Surprise, surprise. People on the other end cooperated with them because they wanted their obsidian. And they traded them whatever they had. And pretty soon there were young guys going back the other way. And this happened spontaneously, naturally. It's what humans do. And there are other, there are other maps that are put together that go back to 13 or 14,000 B.C. That's amazing. You know, uh, yeah. Hobbes um, was, this, uh, was this guy who had a very limited view of life and of reality where he lived in the time frame that he lived and the education that was available for him. But he put together this image of, uh, of ancient man as being this barbaric, um, idiot that just wanted to kill anybody that got near him and was just kind of dragging his knuckles around, eating worms that he found on the ground. And anybody mm -hmm. that he saw, he naturally assumed was an enemy. And he either tried to kill that person or that person tried to kill him. And this was the image that Hobbes sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe going a little over, but that's kind of the image Not that Hobbes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's the way he portrayed us. And again, this is a yeah. cartoon version that is just doesn't face reality at all. I've been in situations where I've come across people who have not seen another human for five or six months. They're way wow. out in the desert, 
and um, they're just living their life out there, sort of. In, and a lot of them have been run out. But in the Mojave Desert in California, there in back in the seventies and eighties, there were a lot of people living out there a hermit life, and they would mm-hmm. go long periods of times without seeing people. And as you would approach their camp, you would think that the first thing they'd want to do is shoot at you, but it was just the opposite. They were thrilled yeah. to see somebody that wasn't a government agent uh, coming mm-hmm. towards their house. And they were the first thing they'd ask you about is, well, what's going on? Is you know, is this happening? Is that what's in the news? Are they do they still have those hostages in Iran? And you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and I imagine back in history, human nature hasn't changed that we know of. Maybe in thirty, forty thousand years, or maybe even longer, or maybe much longer. You know, and so I imagine if you had a settlement somewhere. And here's this guy they spot at a distance. Now I'm sure they're careful. They're not, uh, right? You know, they're not just going to come running out and start showing how much gold they have or whatever. But I imagine a group of people like that living in a settlement, and you see somebody coming from a distance, maybe pulling a wagon or whatever, and you think, hey, that guy might have something interesting, or he might have a new way to do this or to do that. And and that's the nature of humans is to get along and to be curious about what other humans are doing. And and to exchange and trade and swap with each other. Absolutely, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, a friend of mine, Jack Wheeler, is a modern explorer. Uh, he's gone everywhere, done everything. Well, we had dinner together, just he and I, one night. And I said, "Hey, Jack, what about the time when you found a lost tribe in the Amazon?" He says, "Oh, yeah, yeah." And he told me the story of how it went. And he and this, you know, crazy helicopter pilot, it was, of course, the missionaries who knew where they were and, and, and you know, told them where they could find, you know, some people that they knew were out there. Um, but they went and they flew in in a helicopter and landed right next to these people's camp. Okay, this is alien coming from space, right? Yeah. Yeah, and this is, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of a prehistoric style uh, tribe. They're just, you know, an Amazonian tribe. And, you know, they were lost as far as anybody, any, you know, Eastern, any uh, Europeans knew. Um, and they had never seen anybody like them. And these guys went and they said, well, Jack, what did they do? He says, Paul, he says, I never smiled so much in my life. He says, my face hurt. For they were they were giddy, they were happy, they were you know. He says my face hurt when I finally got back in the helicopter. I've been uh, I just finished not long ago a book called uh, People Without Government by Harold Barclay. I'm not oh, sure if I've you've never seen it. It's a really good book. Um, he talks about uh, how different civilizations, like the Bushmen or the um, the Pygmies or the uh, the Berbers, and he he goes into different ones of these different anarchical situ- uh, uh, civilizations, and tells about how their uh, their basic structure of uh, of leadership is. I don't want to call it government because they they were all pretty much voluntary uh, leadership of one kind or another, and varying right. degrees. Some were a little bit more violent than others. But uh, his description of uh, the uh, the pygmies was really surprising to me. They they don't they didn't have a word for murder. They uh, when when outsiders came in and began communicating with them, uh, none of the people who were alive at that time had ever heard of a situation where one human being had intentionally murdered another human being. It just wasn't wow. within their experience. 
And you have to either believe, well, these are, you know, these are magical little people uh, that we imagine from, <laughs> you know, that live in the woods and they're like elves or something. Or else you have to realize that, no, they're just people like us with maybe, you know, some physical differences, but they're people exactly like us, just yep. without being raised, um, you know, browbeaten by every aspect of society and everything you start to do, you have to have permission to do it. And you right. always have the policeman's, um, you know, stick right over your head if you disobey. One of the things I'm going to write about in a month or two in my, in my uh, you know, well, the the main newsletter that I write uh, is that human nature isn't what it is. You know, people say, "Oh, y'all, human nature being what it is." No, human nature isn't what we see it as. We have been affected over thousands of years, and in the newsletter, I'm going to you know provide examples and some proof and you know so on and so forth. But it's a really important subject. We have been deeply, deeply affected by having been ruled for however many thousand years. Before we go to this break, let's give a real quick shout-out to your newsletter. If you go over to Freeman's Perspective, and I'll provide a link in today's show notes to uh, freemansperspective.com. But if you go, if follow the link over there and you get over there, um, how do they go about signing up for your newsletter? Um, there's, first of all, there's, they can get on the list to get uh, you know the free articles anytime. Just it's right there on the site. You can't miss it. Uh, and then there's a uh, I'm, there's a subscribe button at the top of the page. And there's also a list. Um, I, I forget the tab. It's there's only four or five tabs. One of them is to see all the back issues, and they can see the types of things we cover in the premium newsletter. Folks, uh, stick with us. When we get back from this break, we're going to take this in a completely different direction. 30 seconds, folks. Stick with us. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have a helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee. And they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to badquaker.com first. Click the button for Host Gator. And thank you for supporting badquaker.com. And thanks for sticking with us through the commercial. I'm Ben Stone, back with Paul Rosenberg from, from Freeman's Perspective. And uh, we've been talking about history. We've been talking about Bitcoin. and uh, But there's one other thing that we haven't touched on. Um, Paul, you've been described as a Christian anarchist. Is that, a, is that a fair description or is that a horrible accusation? Well, it's not a horrible accusation. Um, I don't think it's really the, the proper uh, description. I, I really don't classify myself as anything in terms of religion. Um, but I do think that Christianity is, and Judaism are at their base anarchist religions. No question about that. The, uh, the example I like to use is anarchical Israel that existed for about 500 years with no uh, governmental structure. Now, they had a series of judges that people could go to voluntarily, and they certainly had a religious uh, structure but even the religious structure, you know, you could be a non-Jew and live among them, and you and you weren't subject to the religious rules. Um, you might not, you know, uh, they wouldn't give you their blessing and things like that. But essentially, Israel lasted about 500 years with nothing that we would, you know, the, today that we would consider a government. 
And then right. uh, a, to- a horrible thing happened, and I, and I, by the reading in the Bible of it, it seems to me like a small group of tribal leaders thought each of them maybe thought, "Hey, I'll bet I could be the king." You know, if I could just get Samuel to say, "Well, you're a pretty good guy. You could be the king. Maybe I could be the king." And so they came to the uh, the primary judge of the day, and they kind of tried to pressure him into making one of them king. Is that about mm-hmm. your is that about your reading of it? Well, it's hard to it's hard to get from the text the motivations of these guys. Although you know your your interpretation is not a, is not necessarily a bad one. Um, but I love the part where they they come to Samuel and say, you know, hey, we want to be like the other nations around us, and we want it. We want a king. And Samuel is troubled by this and tries to dissuade them, and they won't be dissuaded. So Samuel goes to God, and God says. Go ahead, Samuel, give it to them. Don't worry about it. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Yeah. Now talk about uh, uh, some theology right there. Oh, my God. They, to, to want a king, they rejected God. So what does that tell you if you're a believer? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's two sides of this issue. Uh, one is um, government as your, as your God or, mm-hmm. you know, not government and, and freedom and God is your God. Yep. Amazing. And then uh, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Uh, you know, Samuel looked around and he picked out the biggest, tallest, strongest, bravest <laughs> guy that he could find and said, well. Right. Yeah, because, because he was a head taller than everyone else. Yeah. And that's kind of what people think of when they think, well, we'll have a great man. We'll have a big leader. We'll have a, you know, the strong guy that can lead us in battle or protect us from the bad guys or whatever. But that that didn't go so good, did it? No, it turned out to be rather a disaster. And I love that that afterwards, we were talking about this earlier too, the guy who God picks, hand picks, okay? God Almighty hand picks the best man he could find. He finds a guy who happens to be very young, but he has, as God says, a heart after my own. In other words, he's a, he's a, a good man. And uh, God hand picks this guy. And he's king for a certain number of time, and then he got corrupted by power and killed one of his guys because essentially he thought his wife was very hot. And you know, uh, afterwards he, you know, he he repented of it. He was sorry, but you know, he had, he was a murderer because he was corrupted by power, and that's what always happens. And if there, there's no better illustration than that. Yeah, and we're talking about, in, in case anybody doesn't know, uh, we're talking about the King David from from the Bible, and he started right. out so you know humble. He was a godly man. He was a man of prayer and of song, and he ends up mm-hmm. killing one of his best friends and taking his best friend's wife, and uh, and even at, even at the end of his life, he was not allowed to build a temple to God because God said, "No, you're a man of war. You can't represent yeah. me." It, it yep. just flipped it around. It took his life in a sense and made him the opposite of, of what he was. Yeah, I mean, Lord Acton was ever, ever, ever so right. Power corrupts. It just does. And then the next guy that comes in was Solomon, and he was renowned for his wisdom, and he's brilliant. He was great in foreign policy. He was just a genius from everything we can see. Right. Uh, you know, expanded out in every direction. Um, but even he wasn't. As it turns out, the you know the 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 strong guy won't cut it for you. It, it doesn't work. 
The humble, quiet, godly man, nope, he gets corrupted. The brilliant man, the genius, the guy who can work out all the details, the linen, you know, the guy can figure out, the, the brilliant mind that can figure out every detail of how things are going to be, now nah, he's not so great either. Yep. And then his son came along, Rehoboam. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, yeah, you know, you think your dad beat you? Or you, you think my dad beat you? You think Solomon beat you? You think you think my dad was rough to live under? I'm going to beat you like you've never been beat before. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then they broke apart. <laughs> and, and it destroyed the king. And then they act, and, and the next logical thing is that the whole northern kingdom, just to tell folks the story that that are not maybe not familiar with it, the whole northern kingdom basically got overrun by other kingdoms, dissolved, broke up, they, their culture fell apart, they just vanished into the sands of time. And the right. southern kingdom um, got trampled by a far more powerful uh, uh, empire, and the most of the uh, aristocracy... Many of the males uh, try to be as radio friendly as possible here, but many of the males were castrated. Most of the females of the aristocracy were taken as slaves, and the males were used as houseboys uh, in the royal court. So that was yeah. your result of uh, wanting to Pretty have a bad king. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was devastating. Yeah, and then they were in captivity yeah. for five hundred years, which is interesting because they were free as an anarchical society for five hundred years, and then they were. Uh, in slavery for 500 years. Well, not well. They were in they were in Babylon for about 70 years, then came back. Um, oh, under that, that's right. I was thinking Cyrus of Egypt. Persian, yeah, yeah. I was thinking but, of Egypt. But then they had a, a very tough run thereafter with with the Greeks coming in and then the Romans coming in, finally bringing up us up to the time of of uh, Jesus. You know that point. Hey, let's talk about that too, since we're on the topic. I hope we're not boring our our non-Christian audience here, but, um, you know, there was a moment when Jesus was taken up on a hill, up on a mountain, or a predipus, or however you, uh, I just mispronounced that, but anyway, but um, he was brought up to a high place, and he looked out across, and uh, his his tempter, uh, Satan, or however you want to look at that, his tempter showed him all the kingdoms and the empires and the glory of the world and said, you know what? I can give you all this. This is mine. I'm, I'm in control of all this, and I can give you that if you just come to my side. And, um, and I've always said that if the tempter didn't actually own that stuff, if that wasn't his property, then um, he must have either thought Jesus was an idiot and he could tempt him with something that he couldn't come through on, uh, or else it wasn't a temptation. It had to have right. actually been a temptation. So that means the tempter actually did possess those things. Those those empires and kingdoms and governments of the world are the realm of Satan. And Jesus acted as if it were a true statement. He didn't say, no, that's a lie or that's ridiculous. He says, no, I'm not going to do it anyway. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is all of the first Christians believed that too. You know, these guys weren't out trying to reform Rome. They were just flatly separated from it. They weren't even particularly fighting Rome. They just said, no, okay, well, it's evil, and we're not going to, you know, we're going to do our thing over here. You know, forget about them. Uh, There's a a scripture that a lot of of Christians will refer to and say, oh, no, no, we have to follow the rules of the government, and we have to uh, bow to government because uh, Paul, in his letter, I believe it was letter to the Romans, yeah. said that you have to obey authority. Right. And 
uh, I think that's a misreading. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, there's several ways to look at that. Um, you know, one of them, just to toss it out, is, is there are a lot of scholars or some scholars who say that that part really wasn't original. Um, I haven't examined, you know, the original Greek manuscripts. I don't think anybody will ever let me, <laughs> but, uh, so I can't say. But there's, there's a certain argument for that. Another one, the, the important one is that if that's what it really meant, now most, you know, people who studied it, and it was a very important question at the beginning of the American Revolution. Matter of fact, it was the question that kicked off the revolution. Uh, there was a very famous sermon by a guy named Jonathan Mayhew, where he, uh, you know, went dove right into Romans 13 and says, you know, in the end, he said, we don't have to obey the king. Um, but <laughs> the truth of it is, if you try to take it literally, then you have to condemn Peter and John and Paul himself and all of the other Christians of that era and Jesus, because they didn't just obey every authority and do what they told them to do. Peter and John famously, you know, were, were being told they can't do this, and they essentially said, screw you, we're going to obey God rather than men. And so if you're going to take that Romans 13 thing and try to make it literally that he really means you must obey the policeman, well, then you have to obey Adolf Hitler if you're living in Germany, and you have to obey Mao if you're living in China, and you have to obey whatever your government boss tells you, no matter what it is, including killing innocent people. Uh, I, I really, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, this God that they're, that they're saying is good is not good. Right. Yeah, it, yeah you have to either face the facts that, uh, Paul, who was writing this, was a hypocrite and a liar because mm-hmm. he didn't follow through with what with his advice, or you're mistre- you're misinterpreting his advice, or it never really was advice at all. It, it's right. added it, later it on. Pretty much, it pretty much has to be one or the other. Yeah. You can't you can't have it both ways. Let me uh, throw a. a I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure that I've read in your writings anywhere. Uh, on this topic, so let me throw a curveball at you and, and see what you okay. think of this. There's a moment in Scripture where it says that uh, that there was a, a man and a woman, and they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I've translated that as saying, you know, here they were, they were living their lives, and there was only one law, really, and that law was don't touch don't eat that tree, don't touch that tree right over there, just leave it alone, stay away from it. And that tree was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the ability to distinguish this is good and that's bad. And at some point, they violated that one and only law. And then in a sense, uh, the argument that I've made is that they, um, they took on the task themselves of creating what was and wasn't law and implementing that as law. By the, by the very fact that they took that fruit and consumed it, it means they were making up their own law. And in doing that, you know, in this setting that we, that we uh, look at here, God gave them one law. They threw away God's law and made up their own law. And that's in, a, in essence, you know, God is the lawmaker. That's sort of the throne that he sits on as creator of the universe. And if you yank away his ability to control law, to say what is and isn't law, and you put yourself on that throne to say, I'm the lawmaker, I'm the God, isn't that kind of what government does? <laughs> it is what government does. I, the, um, how I think of that passage in Genesis differs from yours in, 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 in some 
they're in significant ways, but it's probably too much to talk about today. But yeah, that's exactly what government does. And I'll give you another kind of quasi-scriptural thing. A friend of mine, um, uh, Spencer McCallum, wonderful man, um, has pointed out, he said, well, you know, the commandment of thou shalt not steal pretty much mandates that we experiment with how human human uh, humans are governed because the governments steal. That's their core operation is taking money, you know, uh, non-voluntarily, taking money by force. If you take that away, they can't exist. So if that's going on and the commandment says thou shalt not steal, then we have to start looking at different ways of doing this because this is wrong. Yeah, um, I don't. Again, I, I hate to keep putting everything in this context, but really, it's a black and white issue. Either that's right or that's wrong. Yeah, pretty much. I, I know sometimes Christians are accused of that. Well, you see everything in a black and white world. You say everything is wrong or right. But I don't know if I walk up to somebody on the street and they're not harming anybody, they're not a threat to me in any way, and I just walk up and punch them in the nose. I'm pretty sure that's wrong. Yeah, and, and I'm right. pretty sure that that's. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that even a person who is an atheist, you know, we're talking in a Christian context here, but you take a, a prominent um, anarchist who's a, an atheist like Stefan Molyneux, and he would agree with us if we were sitting here talking that, yeah, that's clearly, obviously, evil. Uh, it's right. it's immoral. It's wrong. Mm-hmm. So we can, I think, draw uh, lines, hard lines, and say this is wrong. It's wrong if you do it. It's wrong if I do it. And it's wrong if 50 people vote and elect a guy to come and do it to us. Right. This, I, this uh, idea, and it's really kind of a mind virus that, you know, well, if, you know, somebody in authority or somebody that's justified or somebody that's legitimate to do this, they decide, or, if, you know, the masses decide everything else, then it's okay. No, it's not okay. Uh, morality, basic morality is real simple. You know, don't do anything to anybody else that you wouldn't like them doing to you. How hard is that to understand? And, you know, people come up with these, you know, great, well, what if you're on a lifeboat and, you know, this and that? Okay, fine. You can, you know, if you're clever and you can play with words well, you can come up with difficult choices. Yeah, I understand. Fine. Argue about those. But, you know, real life is about point zero 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 one percent those things. And the rest, normal things whereby don't do anything to anybody else that you wouldn't like them doing to you is perfectly fitting. And so, you know, basic morality isn't that hard. When we, uh, when we look at this whole situation around us and we look at the sleeping masses and we look at, uh, you know, aggressive government that just seems to grow stronger and stronger by the minute, um, what's your outlook for the future? Can do we have any chance at all at winning in this? Because I, I have hope for the future. It, it may not be the immediate future, but I have hope for the future. What's your opinion on all that? Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Uh, the the um, we're right now in a real black moment in a lot of ways, but humanity does not sleep forever. And in, long, in the long term, there really is hope, and possibly in the shorter term, too. Um, you know, people have kind of been asleep for about the last hundred years. And not, you know, they just don't want to know. They want to, you know, hand their moral decisions off to 
oh, you know, politicians and sometimes religious leaders, and they don't want to think about it themselves. Uh, and again, it's a long, long involved uh, explanation. There were a bunch of very, very uh, intelligent and aware people in about 1910 who commented on this, that think, boy, think human character is changing. This is not good. Um, so, you know, humanity, Western world for sure, has been kind of outsourcing their judgments of morality and everything else for about 100 years. It won't continue that way forever. Eventually, people decide that enough sleeping is enough, and they begin to engage their minds again. And it may very well be that the people that we see, um, the Ron Paul kids, uh, all, of, all of the things that we see may be the beginnings of that coming. I sure hope so. But I- even if not, it's not going to be forever. Even if it's a thousand years, people will wake up. And you know, every time we go through this kind of rise and fall, a little more information is laid up for the next cycle. And we've got a lot of information laid up for the next cycle now. So if... If the worst happens and we turn into another kind of North Korea until, you know, natural disaster breaks the thing up, um, there's going to be a lot more information left on the other side, and the, the next people will make it through. I'm talking with Paul Rosenberg today, and Paul's site is Free Man's Perspective. There will be a link in today's show notes uh, to that site, and I'm also putting a link to Crypto Hippie USA. Uh, Paul, uh, we have a couple minutes left here. Tell us about Crypto Hippie. Oh, sure. Uh, Crypto Hippie is a, uh, let's call it an advanced VPN, virtual private network. Essentially what we do is we give people privacy uh, on the Internet. We um, use a lot of encryption and very special sorts of computer systems to um, hide hide your identity and hide your information on the Internet. Uh, so that it can't be scooped up everywhere, which, it, you know, I, I could go on about that. But the, the fact is that everybody needs to know that everything you do online is being saved and recorded and stored in forensic databases. I know that some people will think that sounds too extreme. Look into it. It's true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. They've basically admitted to that. And, they have. Uh, uh, Crypto Hippie is a tool that you can use, and and I'm saying this, you know, this is not a commercial for Paul. Paul's not paying me anything or nothing like that. This is just uh, a, a courtesy that uh, I'm allowing Paul because he was kind enough to come on the show with us. But if you're interested in that th- kind of thing, follow the link, get over to Crypto Hippie, and check it out because it really could make a difference for you. Um, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it, and it was really fun talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you. Folks, I want to thank you for listening to today's show, and remember to get over to badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks.